Amen. Amen. He is worthy of our praise, and I hope that you are excited to be in the house of the Lord and to be serving the living God this morning. I'm excited to be here, and I trust you are as well. This entire month is our month of missions emphasis, and we're talking each week about what God is doing around the world and how we can be a part of what he is doing around the world. I want to invite you back tonight at 6 o'clock. If you don't normally come back to the 6 o'clock service, I encourage you to do it today. We're going to have a fun time here tonight. It's a carry-in, and if you say, well, it's Sunday and I can't come up with anything, don't worry. I think we've got some pretty good cooks. They'll have lots of stuff here, so just come anyways. Our kids are going to be singing. We're going to have a great time learning some more about missions, and we're going to have a wonderful time of prayer as we pray for the missionaries who are part of this church. So please, tonight, come back at 6 o'clock. It's going to be cold and yucky out and not spring-like. You'll want to be in here. It's It's going to be the best place to be. So come and join us. Well, like I said, we've been learning about missions this month. And and last week, Lonnie Norris presented the message and, and shared with us about missions. And today we want to continue to move on. We want to talk about the pieces. There are different pieces to the mission story. Grace Point happens to be Grace Point Church of the Nazarene. We are a part of the Nazarene Church around the world, and our missions program is connected with that. And it's exciting to see how God is working and about God's plan for missions around the world. You see, we are called by the Great Commission to go out into all the world and preach the gospel and and tell people about Jesus Christ. But this year, we've been focusing on the mission statement of the church, and it's right up here on the wall, making Christ-like disciples in the nations. You see, we are called to make Christ-like disciples in the nations, you and I, every one of us. It's not just people who are sent to another country. It's every one of us. We're called to make disciples with our neighbors who live right there on the street with us. We are called to make disciples of our family who may not live right near us. Or we're called to make disciples of the people that we run into on a daily basis. It is not optional for us as believers. Every one of us is called to go into this world and to make Christ-like disciples. It is part of God's plan. It is a piece of that puzzle. And it's been a part of our DNA in the Church of the Nazarene since we ever even began. You see, the Church of the Nazarene actually started as a merger, a merger of a number of churches from all over North America who got together and formed this denomination called the Church of the Nazarene in 1908. But those other churches that joined had already been out and sending missionaries out. You see, the merger, what joined us together were these people who wanted to make Christ-like disciples, but they believed in two things, deep and wide. They believed in the deeper walk with Jesus Christ. And the wide was that they were to go into all the world and tell people about Jesus. So on the day of the merger, when the Church of the Nazarene was even formed, there was already work in the Cape Verde Islands off of Africa. There was work in India. And there was already work in China. And from the very beginning, we believed that a part of our work and part of what we needed to do was to reach out and to minister to the needs of people in those places around the world. You see, when Jesus went out and he went from place to place, he went out preaching and teaching and healing. All three of those always combined. Preaching, 
teaching, and healing. And so we, in the Church of the Nazarene, the church that you are a part of, we have been a part of that preaching, teaching, and healing ministry from the very beginning. I took a little bit out of a book that was recently written by a guy named Floyd Cunningham about the history of missions overseas, and he tells us about this ministry in China. He said, for the Nazarenes, the Brazil Memorial Hospital in Daming became an important ministry. The Women's Foreign Missionary Society and California laypersons undertook the building project. C.J. Kine, a Nazarene publisher who had, been, who had spearheaded the fundraising and who late in life married Susan Brzee, the daughter of Phineas Brzee, went to China to oversee the building's construction. When completed in 1925, the hospital accommodated 100 beds. A nurse's training school began soon after with missionary nurses as the instructors. The hospital was designed, as Kine wrote, to be both a good Samaritan to relieve the sufferings of the people and an evangel of mercy to lead them to Christ. You see, both motives were there. Both paradigms represented that of ministering to people simply out of love and that of evangelizing them through medicine. The social and the evangelical components of the work were held together in a balance in what they did. And God allowed us to continue to work through that hospital until World War II and until the communists came over. And our missionaries had to flee from that hospital. They had to flee for their lives. Many of them were actually held in captivity for a period of time before they were set free. And it was just a few years ago that one of the leaders of our work, able again to get into China, went to find this hospital. You see, we lost the hospital. The government had taken it over. We lost everything that we had had. And yet seeds were planted. They found the old hospital, today run and owned by the government. And yet the roots of it, of a people who said, we simply believe we're supposed to go into all the world loving our neighbors, not always knowing what we're going to get, what we're going to get back. You see, I think that sometimes we think that God's blessing is when we get something back in return. It's not always true. Sometimes God just calls us to give. And then he wants to take care of what happens with the rest of it. You see, God has a plan for us. And our plan is that we are to be out there helping people come to know Jesus Christ. And Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 9.22, I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. And we in the church, as we have done missions, have believed that and we have embraced it. And we have said we have to do whatever we can to help people come to Jesus Christ. And sometimes it's not by traditional methods or the ways that we always thought that it ought to happen. So in the Nazarene church, we have missions and we have Nazarene compassionate ministries and they work together. They are pieces of a puzzle that work together. Compassionate ministries has always been at the forefront, like I said, with the hospital. The hospital in China, it wasn't our only one. We had another hospital that was in India and another one in Swaziland and another one eventually in Papua New Guinea. And those were the medical works that we had. But there were other ministries and works that were happening around the world. Why? Why did we do this? Because we believe that this loving our neighbor is part of what we are called to do. Sometimes we have found ourselves in a place where we're trying to find a balance. 
What's the balance between evangelization and compassionate ministries? What's the balance between preaching the gospel and yet simply loving people because they need the love of Jesus Christ? And so we try to find a balance in the work and the ministry that we do as a church, a balance that says, I'm going to love you even if I get nothing in return. And yet, a love that says, I want to tell you about Jesus Christ. Why do we do this? Well, I want to take us to the book of Matthew. I want to take us to the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is coming up to the top of the mountain, and he's sitting down, and his disciples are gathering all the way around him. And they're saying, Father, teach us. Teach us about what you want us to do in life. And Jesus begins to teach them, although everything he's teaching them is upside down. The things that he tells them about life don't make sense to the people of this world because they are not the world's principles. And so this is what Jesus begins to tell them. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, some of you ladies have been in the Thursday night Bible study, and we talked about this scripture just a few weeks ago. But there's an important point here. At the end of that portion of scripture, Jesus says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I think many of us cringe at those words, and we think, I can't be perfect. Well, if you think that you can be a perfect person or a perfect Christian, you are right. You can't be a perfect person. But Jesus, in his understanding, was saying, you need to fulfill the purpose for which you were created. That's what perfection meant to Jesus, a Hebrew boy. Fulfill the purpose for which God has created you, and in that way you will be perfect. Interestingly, the structure of that sentence he takes from the Old Testament where God says, Be holy, for I, your God, am holy. So there's this connection to holiness and to this word perfect. For we are all called to that deeper walk with Jesus Christ that says, You are to be a holy people. You're not supposed to just say, I'm satisfied with walking a shallow walk. I want to go on to that deeper walk. And somehow Jesus connects it to this idea of loving those who don't like you. And somehow that fits in with holiness. You see, we are a holiness people. So I want us to stop for a minute and realize that sitting around Jesus that day were all of his disciples and they had their sermon notes out and they're sitting there taking notes on the sermon. And interestingly, we all take notes and hear things through our own lenses. So let's look at this. This is in Luke chapter 6. This is Luke who was sitting there listening to the same sermon, taking notes, and somehow he hears it through his filter, Dr. Luke. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? 
Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting them to repay them in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. So why does Dr. Luke hear that sentence, be merciful, and Matthew hears the sentence, be perfect? Because their understanding of what they're hearing is that Jesus is saying, for you as holy people of God, to fulfill the purpose for which you were created, you are to show mercy. That's what it means to be a holiness people. To love those that don't love you. To love the world around you with the way that God would want you to do so. That's his expectation. And that's why we do what we do in missions around the world. Sometimes we are doing things in the name of compassionate ministries to be merciful, just as Jesus was merciful. Well, let me take you to Russia in the early days. We moved there in 1992, and as soon as we moved there, people started sending us all kinds of stuff. I mean, boxloads of things kept being sent to us, and people hoped we could do something with it because people want to show compassion and mercy. It was always interesting. One of my favorite things was a box of Afghans, and I had to translate that to get it through customs. And the only Afghans that they knew were people from Afghanistan. They couldn't figure out how those got in a box. So, um, so we had all this stuff that was always coming in. And one of the things that we got one time was we got like four, five, six boxes, big boxes, filled with IV fluid and IV tubing and IV needles. And it's sitting there in our office, and I'm thinking, what are we going to do with all this stuff? Because I had no place to send it. And I didn't have connections at that point to do anything with it, and it was going to expire, and we're going, what are we doing with all this IV stuff? Well, it was October of 1993. We'd just been there about a year. And one morning we woke up, turned on the English-speaking radio, and we discovered we had two presidents. That's not a good thing to have happen. We had one president in the White House, and we had another president over at the Kremlin, and both of them wanted to be in charge of the country. And things got nasty. And during the night, what we did not know is that the tanks had rolled down Leninsky Prospect to the center of town, and we lived at the intersection of Leninsky and Lomonosovsky. I mean, they had gone down our street. We got a phone call that said school is canceled indefinitely. Christy was like, yay! Mom's going, we don't, never had war days before, but that's okay. So uh, we were having a war day, and we were home, and I'm home with the little girls, and they're all excited, and they want to play and everything, and I'm a little bit distracted because I'm seeing smoke from downtown coming up. <clears throat> and for three days, we had a war. Um, they finally got rid of the ones that were in the White House. At the end of the time, the kids called the White House the Zebra House because it was now black and white. It had been bombed so much. And at the end of those three days, as we're listening to our little American radio, they said so many people have been injured. They said we have about 300 wounded that have been taken to main hospital number one in the city. And they said we have a problem. They said, you see, 
The airports have been shut down for three days. There's been no transportation in or out of this city. And at that time, things in Russia were pretty desperate. A cardiac intensive care unit comprised of you laying in a bed and getting an aspirin a day. And on the radio, they said, if anybody has IV supplies of any kind and IV bags or whatever, we need them desperately at hospital number one in downtown Moscow. It'll be 36 hours before an airplane from Germany can fly in medical supplies. And we went over and we loaded up everything that we had. And we had to get through barricades and everything to get down to hospital number one and deliver those supplies. And they were just amazed. They're like, how did you get these? Why do you have these? Well, I have to believe it's a God thing. You see, Jesus said, be merciful as I am merciful. And and, and Jesus wanted us to go out and to help to give to those who were in need. And God had supplied the right stuff at the very right moment for the very right people. It's amazing to watch how God works. And so there in in Russia, we organized as the church and also as Nazarene Compassionate Ministries, and we partnered with a group called Heart to Heart. And Heart to Heart contacted us and, sorry, there's cracks there. (laughs) Heart to Heart contacted us and they said, uh, we're going to be flying a huge airplane full of medical supplies to the city of St. Petersburg. It was amazing the way God was putting pieces together. You see, when Boeing would build a brand new airplane, when it was empty and being delivered someplace in the world, they would allow us to fill it with supplies. And so we could fill an entire Boeing airplane full of supplies and fly it into the city of St. Petersburg. And Heart to Heart said, Carla, if you help us with what we're doing, we'll work together, and we will give you a major part of the cargo that's coming off that plane, and it's all going to be medical supplies. And I remember we began to pray about what we were going to do because we had no ministry yet in St. Petersburg. And along the way, God had helped us to become friends with a lawyer. Her name was Natalia Vasotskaya. And she, along the way, had become friends with Chuck Colson. And she was involved in prison ministries. And Natalia and I are talking. And she says, Carla, I can get you into the worst prison in St. Petersburg. And she said, they desperately need help. And so Natalia made the arrangements, and we traveled up to St. Petersburg, and I went into this horrible prison called the Crosses in St. Petersburg. It had been built during the time of the Tsars, and it was dreadful. I've actually never been in anything so awful in my entire life. It had been built to house 1,150 inmates, and by that time they had 12,500 inmates in the prison. Ten times the number of people they should have had per cell. People slept in shifts. And they had a hospital there that had literally nothing. The place was crumbling and the smells and the sights were beyond belief. But I sat across the desk from the head of that place And I said, we're going to bring in an airplane load of medical supplies. I can send you truckloads. Would you like to have this medical help? And he was like, yes, I'd like to have that medical help. And he kind of gave me a list of things that he would need. Six weeks later, I went back because now the plane was going to land in a couple of days. And I went and I met with him. And I said, okay, are we on board? Have we planned it all? Do you have the trucks ready? And he just looked at me in amazement. And he pulled open his desk drawer And he pulled out a stack of business cards this big. And he said, all of these people have come and talked to me and said they would do something for us. 
And then he pulled out my card and he said, you are the first person that ever came back. And we arranged all the trucks and we sent them to meet the plane. And the day that we delivered the medical supplies, they allowed us to come in with hundreds of copies of a book called Jesus the Nazarene that tells the story from the Gospel of John. And I was able to bring in a whole team of people with me, and we didn't get into the hard security areas, but they let us walk through the hospital part of that prison, and they let us share the love of Jesus with the prisoners in the worst prison hospital in the country of Russia. Well, praise God. Praise God. You see, Jesus said, be merciful. For I am merciful. We are to show mercy to our world around us. It is part of our calling. It's part of what we're asked to do as we go around the world. Let me just take you to Africa for a few minutes. And you have all heard about the AIDS crisis in Africa. And you know, with all the other news that we're hearing of crises around the world, this one can kind of slip under the rug. But did you know that the average age of those that attend our church, the actually like the average age of people in Africa today is somewhere around 20 years of age. It's because the adults are all dying and all these children are having to raise other children. And so here we have this epidemic. You see, it's been said that in 100 years, people are going to look back on this time in history. And the main question that they are going to ask us as Christians is, what did you do about AIDS? AIDS is often referred to as a pandemic, a plague, a deadly disease that touches all regions. And yet this pandemic is not just about staggering statistics, but the faces of people. It's about real lives. It's about children. And it's about church. In 2001, the Church of the Nazarene adopted a manual statement on AIDS saying, you know what, we can't stand by. We've got to figure out something to do. It says, since 1981, our world has been confronted with a most devastating disease known as HIV-AIDS. In view of the deep need of HIV-AIDS sufferers, Christian compassion motivates us to become accurately informed about HIV-AIDS. Christ would have us to find a way to communicate his love and concern for these sufferers in any and every country of the world. And at that time, we reached out and we joined hands with people like World Vision and Compassion International and said, we have to have a plan for Africa. What are we going to do? And we came up with several different targeted responses, and one of them was spiritual support. We are going to support our churches. We're going to support our pastors. But did you know that many of our pastors basically have, are running orphanages? Pastors who now have 15 or 20 children. What are we going to do as a church? One thing you can even do is to buy a cow for a pastor so that they have milk to help feed those children. We can buy seeds so that they can grow a farm and they can help raise those children. We're doing education programs all over Africa today. We are going around as the Church of the Nazarene and we are teaching abstinence and education about AIDS because we believe God has called us to be merciful, and that's part of what we have to do. We're doing vocational training for these young children who suddenly have to figure out how they're going to get a job. The face of missions, maybe it's changed. We are called to share the gospel, but we are called to show mercy to those who are around us, sometimes expecting nothing in return. 
Well, finally, what goes around comes around. And many, many years ago now, Steve and Linda Weber left the United States and went to Haiti to be missionaries. It's the couple up on the top left. And Linda Weber happens to be the younger sister of Barb Kiefer, who's here today. And Steve and Linda Weber went to Haiti to be missionaries. They were excited about their work and their ministry there. But while they were there, Steve became overwhelmed with the condition of Haiti back in those days. And he began to pray that God would help him to know how he could help these people. And he developed programs of of, of business development and, and things to help people improve their lives and And he really became the founder of what we call today the modern Nazarene Compassionate Ministries. After a few years in Haiti, his mind was so great about that, they called him to come to our headquarters in Kansas City, and he founded our organization today that we know of as Nazarene Compassionate Ministries. And he poured himself into that. He poured himself into everything that was going on around the world, the stories that I've told you this morning. He was the one that was heading up those works in those days. Well, since then, Steve and Linda thought that they would retire. And in their retirement, God has called them to a ministry of prayer, and they've been here at our church just a year ago. But since the Haiti earthquake, remember that group I told you about, Heart to Heart? We partnered with them. Heart to Heart got a hold of Steve and Linda and said, Steve and Linda, are you ready to go back to Haiti? So out of retirement goes Steve and Linda, who are packing up their things and are moving to Haiti to be the bridge between heart-to-heart and our local churches. You see, one of the neat things about Nazarene the Church of the Nazarene and missions around the world is we have one of the greatest delivery systems in the world. You see, we have churches all over the place, and we've got people in churches, and we've got a way to deliver things. And a lot of the other big organizations can raise money and do things, but they don't have a way to deliver it. And so God partners us together with people like World Vision or Samaritan's Purse or Heart to Heart because... We need them, and they need us, and we work together, and God does amazing things by putting us all together. So what goes around comes around, and Steve and Linda have moved and are moving back to Haiti, and Steve was just recently there. He sent out this email this week, and some of you may have already read this, but I want to share it with you all. And Steve is sharing about what is happening on the ground in Haiti. He writes, many have asked, Why do you, what do you do in Haiti? And he said, well, here's my attempt at an answer. I arrive at a heart-to-heart clinic located in the Bel Air Church of the Nazarene in downtown Port-au-Prince. It's so very hot. It's 104 degrees inside the building, and the building has no air conditioning. I watch with increasing awe as the incredible medical volunteers work with hundreds of Haitians waiting patiently in the heat for their turn to see one of the doctors. Across the street, a small army of government-paid workers are digging through a collapsed building and pull another mummified body out of the rubble. And I ask myself, how many more are under there? The rubble was a street market totally flattened by the earthquake, and people ran into it for shelter instead of out into the street. I moved to another heart-to-heart clinic. This one is located right in the middle of Leogan, the epicenter of the earthquake. Almost every structure has been destroyed, and yet both the Nazarene church and the Mennonite compound right next door are both relatively undamaged. I marvel. Heart-to-heart doctors and nurses of various faiths are working in the courtyard of a Nazarene church, and they're being fed and housed in tents by the the Mennonite missionaries. 
The Canadian Army is providing all of the logistical support. And one of my favorite sayings comes to mind, we are better together. It certainly is at work in this place. I move on. And this time I'm up into Haiti's southern mountains to an area called Fondois. On the way up, I think to myself, surely this far from Port-au-Prince, the damage will be minimal. But how wrong I am. The area around Fondois is all but entirely destroyed. And this unique area that has housed the only university outside the capital, its schools, the housing for the nuns that run the schools, the credit bureau that has brought hope to the surrounding community, and the home of the amazing Catholic priest that epitomizes what can be done to transform a community, it's all gone. It is not lost on me that I am surveying the losses with two members of one of Heart to Heart's strongest partner agencies, the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee. I am giving a tour as a Nazarene to a totally destroyed Roman Catholic university with two Jews from Israel. Pretty cool. And I must say a quick prayer. God, you must be smiling Thank you for this opportunity to give my life to something quite special. And I share the needs of this large Catholic community called Fondois. And Father Joseph looks at me and asks, Steve, can you help us? And praise God, I say yes, largely because of the generosity of my new friends that I've just made from Israel. I continue on to the town of Jacmel on the south coast. And Jacmel Nazarene Church has, by the way, a memorial to Linda and to Barb's mother. I'm overwhelmed at the scope of the destruction. I guess I thought the damage was mostly in and around Port-au-Prince, and I wondered to myself, just how many years is it going to take to dig through all this endless rubble and how many more bodies lay buried? I return to Port-au-Prince only to stumble into another grotesque scene. This time, it is three young men. They are looters who had just been gunned down by the Haitian police. There was no halt or stop and I will shoot you. Instead, they simply empty their magazines into the fleeing looters. And I look at the three crumbled bodies and I ask myself, why? Why do so many have to die? I struggle for composure as we slowly work our way through the carnage. I ask no one in particular. I just sort of mumble, at least they should cover up the bodies. But no, they are left there as examples for all to see. For you see, the penalty for stealing is the ultimate price. I arrive back at Heart to Heart's Maison de Cour, and I sit down very weary and sad. Yet at the same time, there's an excitement about our clinics and about our new Jewish partners, and I wonder anew, how can I really explain what I do here to people who have never experienced this place? What's your piece of the puzzle? Where do you fit into this whole story today? You see, some of us may be called to pray. I hope we are all called to pray for the work of missions. Some of us are called to give and some of us are called to go, but we all fit into this puzzle piece somewhere. Today we're talking about something called faith promise. There are these cards that are in your bulletins, and I ask you to get your card out right now if you wouldn't mind and take a look at it. Faith promise. You might say, Pastor Carla, what does that mean? Well, what it means is that I promise by faith that I'm going to continue to help to support this work of missions around the world. What I told you about today, that work is what we here at Grace Point help to support. 
By our missions giving, we are keeping these ministries going all over the world. It's an incredible way that we can participate and we can be a part of what God is calling us to do. And you might say, but Pastor Carl, I don't have any money. I can't do this. You don't know how hard things are here. I do know how hard things are here. But I've heard the people from around the world say this, America, maybe you have caught a cold, but we have pneumonia. We still have it better off than they do. And we have a world out there that's saying, what are you going to do to help us? Be merciful, for your Father in heaven is merciful. And so today, we are asking that everybody that's here today, young and old, just to participate in some way in faith promise. In faith, what can you promise to do this next year for missions? Maybe it's a one-time gift that you would like to give. Maybe you want to give weekly or maybe you want to give by month. It's okay. But I want everybody that's here to be praying about, God, what can we do to be a part of this? I remember as a teenager, I was about 14 years old the first time I filled out one of these. I thought it was impossible. But God told me to put down 100 bucks. I'll never forget that. I turned that in. And, you know, surprisingly, just a few weeks later, something happened and somebody would give, somehow I ended up with a hundred bucks. And I was like, wow, how did that happen? And I knew I was supposed to give it because by faith I had promised what God had told me to promise. So nobody's too young and nobody's too old to be a part of this. Let me tell you, we are all called to make Christ-like disciples in the nations. And that means that we are all called to participate and to be a part of this. And so in just a few minutes, I'm going to have you stand and and have you come to the front like we did for the Haiti offering and to drop your card in one of these baskets up here. You know, as little or as much as God might put on your heart, but let's pledge to keep this work of missions going around the world. Be merciful, for God is merciful. Let us pray.